This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. I'd like to uh, begin this morning talking uh, about Martin Buber's I and Thou. But first I want to just say a little bit about the spirit in which we encounter such a, a text. Zen students are often uh, very parochial. They have a tendency to think that it's all in Dogen or it's all in Joko, that the idea of enlightenment carries with it a kind of thorough and comprehensive understanding so that uh, anything we need to know must be realized by one of these uh, enlightened masters. And that when we read teachers or philosophers from other traditions, we do it in a slightly condescending way such that we will read them. And if there's something that resonates with us, we'll say something like, oh, they understand that. You know, it's that, that sounds like Zen. They must have really gotten a little bit of the, this right. And so we read them basically sort of judging them on how much like us they are, how much of the truth they managed to realize uh, without the benefit of Zen. And it's very hard for us to approach other traditions or other writers with the idea that, you know, maybe they got something that we missed. Maybe there's something that uh, isn't really all that well covered in Dogen. Maybe Joko, for all her insight, really didn't... Uh, cover every possible permutation of human relatedness in a way that uh, maybe we have to go somewhere else to, to fill in the, some very real blanks. So I'm going to begin and reading of the opening pages of I and Thou. And I don't want us to read him uh, just with an eye to see how Zen he sounds. 
what he's saying in some ways is going to be uh, familiar. Some ways he's dealing with issues of separation and interconnection, interdependence. But in other ways, he has a very different stance towards dualism. He's not trying to dissolve it into oneness or interconnection. It's not going to go away in the end. And I think we should try to read and listen with a sense that this perspective, even when it doesn't correspond to what we already know, might illuminate a dimension that we've neglected. So to begin with I and thou. To man, the world is twofold in accordance with his twofold attitude. The attitude of man is twofold in accordance with the twofold nature of the primary words which he speaks. The primary words are not isolated words, but combined words. One primary word is the combination, I, thou. The other primary word is the combination, I, it. And without a change in the primary word, one of the words he and she can replace it. Hence the I of man is also twofold. For the I of the primary word I thou is different, is a different I from that of the primary word I it. So what do we have just in that opening uh, paragraph? We're not starting with an I or self that goes out to encounter the world or encounters other people. Our starting point, what he calls a primary word, is something that's already compound, that's already got this hyphen in it. I, thou, I, it. We don't pre-exist our engagement with another or, or, or with the world. Who and what we are is co-created or emerges or is somehow defined by the relational context in which we find ourselves. Now, I, it may be the more familiar configuration for us. And it seems similar to what we talked about 
last week in the discussion of reification. And this is where its similarity to Zen may make us think about a, a sense of I, it as designating separation from the world. It's going to be overcome in Zen by non-separation, by becoming the it, becoming the sound of the raindrops, becoming the sound of the distant temple bell. But Buber moves in a different direction when he says that the alternative to I, it is I, thou. There, we're, we're not dissolving a distinction. We're not moving into the absolute or non-separation. The thou, another person, is our first assumption what that means, but he's not going to be confined to that for Buber. Is remaining unique and distinct. He's going to go on to further define this idea of the primary word. Primary words do not signify things, but they intimate relations. Primary words do not describe something that might exist independently of them. But being spoken, they bring about existence. Primary words are spoken from the being. Now I'm inclined to stop there and, and realize what well, I don't know what he means by being. Primary words are spoken from the being. What is that? Let's let's uh, let's keep it bracketed and not jump to a conclusion that we understand what that means. But he's the important thing here seems to be is saying primary words do not describe something that might exist independently of them, but being spoken, they bring about existence. This, they involve relations, not things, and the speaking of them seems to be very crucial. That the speaking is what brings the relation into focus or into being. I do not exist prior to my engagement with you or my engagement with the world. For me, this is reminiscent of uh, Heidegger, who's writing about the same time in the 1920s. 
when he talks about Dasein, being there, or as it gets translated to English, being in the world with these hyphens. And I, I think that uh, the hyphens in Buber and the hyphens in Heidegger both try to point to an underlying interconnection that we ordinarily break up into separateness. To continue with his second paragraph, if thou is said, the I of the combination I-thou is said along with it. If it is said, the I of the combination I-it is said along with it. So the I of the I-thou is different than the I of the I-it. Since what I am is relation, what I am changes according to what kind of relation that is or what I'm in relation with. The I doesn't exist independently uh, pre-relation. Then he concludes, the primary word I-thou can only be spoken with the whole being. The primary word I-it can never be spoken with the whole being. Again, that word being, and now the whole being. What do we think that means? So far, I'm not sure. There is no I taken in itself, but only the I of the primary word, I thou, and the I of the primary word, I it. When a man says I, he refers to one or the other of these. The I to which he refers is present when he says I. Further, when he says thou or it, the I of one of those primary words is present. The existence of I and the speaking of I are one and the same thing. When a primary word is spoken, the speaker enters into the word and takes his stand in it. So here we have the sense that and we don't, that speaking brings forth the I. And I'm going to sort of tentatively assume that speaking is somewhat metaphorical for a whole embodied expression of relatedness a kind of um, way of manifesting ourselves in the world.
where when I say thou, when I engage another from a certain perspective, I come forth as a certain kind of person. When I speak it, or if I engage the world in a certain kind of reifying, objectifying manner, I manifest in the world as a certain very different kind of I. The life of human beings is not passed in the sphere of transitive verbs alone. It does not exist in virtue of activities alone, which have some thing for their object. I perceive some thing. I am sensible of some thing. I imagine some thing. I will some thing. I feel something. I think something. The life of human beings does not consist of all of this and the like alone. This and the like together establish the realm of it. Now that that's a complicated and challenging notion because we might be thinking of the I uh, in terms of subjectivity. But he says, perception, sensation, imagination, willing, feeling, thinking, all of those things can be aspects of I-it, right? It's not our inner subjectivity that distinguishes from objects in the world. And our relationship to our sensations, feelings, thoughts, and intentions can be instrumentalized, can be represented by transitive verbs, as he says. But the realm of thou has a different basis. When thou is spoken, the speaker has no thing for his object. For where there is a thing, there is another thing. Every it is bounded by others. It exists only through being bounded by others. But when thou is spoken, there is no thing. Thou has no bounds. When thou is spoken, the speaker has no thing. He has indeed nothing, but he takes his stand in relation. When he says, when thou is spoken, the speaker has no thing for his object, that sounds like we know where he's going, that uh, we're not 
separating out and reifying or objectifying some object of experience. But it gets hazier after that. Every it is bounded by others. It exists only through being bounded by others. That's, that's less clear to us. I found myself associating to Sartre's distinction between the in itself and the for itself. where there's a kind of parallel contrast between the subject for itself that is characterized by freedom and the in itself, the object which is characterized by boundedness or limitation, you know, in Buber's sense. And Sartre has this um, dictum or little axiom that says, uh, for itself is not what it is and is what it's not. Things are what they are. Right? Things are defined objects that have limits and boundaries. But the subjective self, which is defined by freedom, is defined by what it's not, in the sense that it's defined by its range of possibility. It's not what it is. It's not bounded by a definition of size, shape, weight, or position. And it is what it's not. Its essence is its freedom to go off in infinite directions through choice or will. So, When he says the it is bounded by others, but thou has no bounds, to understand that I'm already making an analogy with Sartre and the idea of freedom, thou has no bounds. But I'm not sure Buber is really talking about freedom here the way Sartre is. But I don't think he's also, he's not talking about no separation, the way uh, we hear in Zen, as, as a different way of talking about no bounds. It is said that man experiences his world. What does that mean? Man travels over the surfaces of things and experiences them. He extracts knowledge about their constitution from them. He wins an experience from them. His experience is what, what belongs to the things. But the world is not presented to man by experience alone. 
These present him only with a world composed of it and he and she and it again. If I experience something, if I add inner to outer experience, nothing in the situation has changed. We are merely following the uneternal division that springs from the lust of human race to whittle away the secret of death. Inner things are outer things. What are they but things and things? I experience something. If we add secret to open experiences, nothing in the situation is changed. How self-confident is that wisdom which perceives a closed compartment in things, reserved for the initiate, initiate and manipulated only with the key? O oh, secrecy without a secret, O oh, accumulation of information, it, always it. Again, he's going after the primacy of subjectivity, as if that is the alternative to objectifying the world. Well, if we think that objectification is the problem, just a kind of gaining idea of manipulation of objects in the world, he says, don't think the alternative is to dwell on inner experience. Don't think that the secret is something deep inside you. Again, we can say he's intimating something about what do we call our true self? Is it deep inside? Is it our deepest feelings? Is it some secret in us that we have to uncover? All of that, he says, is part of the realm of it. What he calls being, which may have some parallels to our notions of true self, isn't found inside, isn't an object of experience. Some way or another, our true self only emerges in relation. What does that mean? Let's leave it there and see what we can come up with in discussion.